Fellow. This is the Fight Back Podcast, hosted by exercise scientist Georgia Very. Here, you'll find a series of honest conversations about martial arts and mental health. My guests and I explore the statement that every martial artist has heard. Martial arts saved me. How and why do combat sports save people? Listen to find out. Hey there, Conscious Combat Soul. What, you? Yes, I'm talking to you. If you listen to this podcast, then you are a human being who loves combat and wants to be conscious about the way that you're doing it. You're interested in being more trauma-informed, more inclusive, and more ethical in the way that you teach and participate in martial arts and combat sports. And that's why I would like to invite you specifically to join our new group, the Conscious Combat Club. We're on Facebook, and there's an emailing newsletter that you can sign up for, the details for both of which are in the show notes here. But now, let's get to today's episode. Everybody, welcome to the Fight Back Podcast. I am here today with Steve Kwan, the founder of one of my favorite podcasts, the BJJ Mental Models Podcast. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I am super flattered. One of your favorite. That actually means a lot to me. Thank you for that. This was actually one of the first like BJJ-related content that I got into when I started training. I just got really oh, lucky that a friend was like, you guys should start listening to this. So we did, and I totally credit you to vastly improving my triangles where I was just throwing them up randomly because that was the first thing I learned and I've got long legs. And I was like, yes, this is this is the coolest thing I've ever done. And, um, yeah, then I realized that you couldn't just, just start from nowhere. You had to break down someone's posture <laughs> before you can do that, among other things. You got picked up and you got thrown, didn't you? That's a lesson that we all go through. <laughs> oh my God. So yeah, I've, I've been, I have, I have, I have been. And like, it was hard for me starting from kickboxing and going to jujitsu. I was always like leaving limbs out as well too. That's yeah. like a very Muay Thai kind of thing. But in any case, that's enough of my fangirling because I've got so many different things that I want to get into with you today. We're going to start with more a bit about you because... Even though your podcast is very famous, not everyone who listens to this show does Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So they might not be aware of who you are. So can you give us a bit of an intro? Absolutely. So thanks again for having me. My name is Steve. I'm probably best known for being the creator of the BJJ Mental Models podcast. We chose that name for the podcast because I, I felt it would be good SEO. I mean, the name is exactly what it says. It's about jujitsu and it's about mental models. And for those who aren't familiar with that, um, mental models are really just a fancy word for thinking in terms of systems and big picture ideas and concepts. And the idea for the show came about because my brother and I, uh, we both train jujitsu. We're both black belts in Brazilian jujitsu, um, but we actually live in different places. We train with different teams. And what we discovered once we both got our black belts, we were just talking and we realized we'd kind of seen some of the same patterns and learned some of the big picture lessons in the sport independently. And we started putting our heads together. We wound up building a database of all of the stuff we'd learned. And then we did a podcast and it just kind of snowballed. And at this point, it's, um, yeah, it's a pretty well-known podcast in the jujitsu space. Our goal, rather than uh, being like every other podcast and video instructional out there, we try to be extremely educational. There's not a lot of celebrity interviews or gossip or current events on our show. Every episode is intended to be roughly about a one-hour lesson where we get a, a good guest and we dig deep into a particular idea. 
And I'd say that the big thing that kind of makes us distinguished from other stuff is we don't get overly focused and caught up on technical minutia about where does the arm go, where does the leg go. We talk more about big ideas, things that are common to a lot of different aspects of jujitsu. And what I found as I get older and more experienced with jujitsu is that understanding those big ideas is a lot more efficient for learning than just trying to basically cram like you would in high school, where you try to memorize everything that your instructor says, and then you promptly forget it right after the exam, right? So that's kind of our model. Um, that's the thing that I'm best known for. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you reached out. I'm happy to have you or to be on here and I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, and I think the idea of learning from mental models as opposed to going through a syllabus and learning, you know, where do all of the groups need to be for 54, 100, 200 different techniques really speaks to me through my line of work and through the people who listen to this podcast. Because if you think about the impact of trauma, right, when your nervous system has that kind of an adaptation, oftentimes learning can be difficult. The ideal state for your brain to learn is when you're calm. And if your normal state is not a state of calm, how are you going to remember 17 steps for how to do a technique? So yeah. when I think mental models, I'm like, it's not just more efficient, right? It's also much more inclusive for everybody's learning style. I can't think of someone who it's not going to work for. Yeah. And what you're talking about is, uh, I mean, this goes way beyond the martial arts, but you're talking about creating a psychologically safe environment where people feel comfortable trying new things. They feel safe. They're willing to experiment. They're willing to explore. And this is an area of the martial arts that I think is still quite undeveloped. I think most instructors fail to take this into account. They think that being a good instructor is all just about showing good techniques and helping people learn to do arm bars and throws and things like that. But you'll never get that far if people take one look at your gym and they decide this is not the place for me. So we've had a lot of conversations recently on the podcast about inclusivity um, and how to make things more welcoming to people, especially people who are maybe reasonably very intimidated about trying martial arts, right? If this is something really outside your wheelhouse, it's incredibly important to make this a welcoming and positive experience for everyone who comes in the door. Um, I mean, there's a lot of people who they could go on to be elite level world champions one day, but they're never going to reach that potential if you scare them off during the free trial period, right, at your gym. So inclusivity um, and just character, integrity, ethics, moral standards. Um, I, I think that this is an area of development that I'm really hoping we'll see the martial arts explore a lot more because we know how to do the technical stuff, but there's a, a, a character and an integrity component that I think comes along with doing this stuff that I now want to see more instructors pick up and work into their curriculum. If you had a magic wand, let's say, right, there's so much going on in the jiu-jitsu space at the moment around, oh, like, are we going to become an Olympic sport and will we have, like, one governing body? I think the only way to get that going in the foreseeable future is to have a magic wand. So here you go. You have one. You can wave it. it. Wonderful. You wave it. Mm -hmm. You create a committee that has oversight over all clubs, no matter their affiliation. What are some of the things that you would introduce to create more of that kind of environment that you just alluded to? This is a good question. And I mean, I don't really know if I'm the, the expert in this area. I've definitely talked to a lot of people about this at length, but there are people who specifically specialize in this field of study. Um, like they're, they're in entire sports ethics organizations that have theories on this. And so I don't want to set the expectation that I, I know how to solve the problem. I, I really don't. But what I do know is that in jujitsu, 
um, really the focus when it comes to how we organize and structure things, it's, it's generally all about competitive performance. So the kinds of things that we try to regulate for are how we bracket tournaments and how we make sure that the tournaments are fair and you're in there with people of your own weight class and how do we organize this and to some extent how do we standardize it. The reality is jiu-jitsu is still a very niche sport so it is nowhere near as uh, organized as something like boxing or judo which is just more popular. Um, in the case of jiu-jitsu the big thing that I would like to see a, a focus on is I would like to see organizations have um, basically take ethics as seriously as athletic performance. Uh, I think it is reasonable that a sporting organization and governing body should have a, a level of character and ethics that we should expect all athletes to have and hold them accountable if they fail to meet those expectations. And you don't see that in jiu-jitsu. The thing that people seem to excessively focus on in jiu-jitsu is, is this person good at jiu-jitsu or not? And in fact, this has been this is kind of, a, in my opinion, a, an incomplete and problematic way of assessing the martial art because there are a lot of people who are tremendously good at jujitsu, who ha are absolute moral failures of human beings. I mean, I I know that a lot of your listeners probably aren't jujitsu people, but if you study the space, you know that there are people recently who were um, embroiled in large-scale sexual assault, um, child abuse scandals that really rocked the jujitsu community. And there's still a lot of people, including our some of our major governing bodies, who are kind of apologists for these people, um, who still include them in events and still give them press and coverage and opportunities. And I don't understand that, um, you know, as a guy who works a desk job, or which I call the real world, right? Because often the real world is very different from what happens in martial arts. I can't fathom this. I can't imagine that if it came out that one of my coworkers were embroiled in criminal activity or sexual abuse, that we would just hand wave that away. I can't imagine we would say, oh, well, you know, yeah, it, it is true that Bob's convicted of sexual assault, but he's a really good accountant, so we got to keep him around. We just care about his accounting abilities. Uh, that wouldn't happen, right? We, In society, we have to have standards of what we accept to be good moral behavior, and I don't think our jiu-jitsu governing bodies take those into account. I think it is reasonable to do things like background checks and beyond that to be willing to um, to exercise and remove athletes who are consistently problematic or who are embroiled in really bad behavior. Um, there's just way too much crazy stuff that I see in the jiu-jitsu community that would never fly in any walk of life, uh, let alone even in any other sport. But we tolerate it and that's a failing of the sport. So there's my magic wand. We care about ethics now. That's my, my wish for the jiu-jitsu space. I think it would be absolutely fantastic. One of the things that I'm always caught saying is that I hate that we have to use the term trauma-informed. To me, trauma-informed means being a decent human being towards one another. But there has to be a distinction because at the moment, not all jiu-jitsu spaces, not all kickboxing spaces, not all martial arts spaces are safe spaces for people to go to. And someone who's particularly vulnerable, who says, okay, I want to feel empowered. I want to learn self-defense. I want to learn to improve myself in some way, can accidentally walk into a space that is potentially going to make the situation worse in the long run. And it really is at the moment like a roll of the dice. It, it can be hard to, on the surface, tell what's going to be a good gym and what's going to be a not very ethical gym. But I'm an, an eternal optimist and I think that wallets are going to start shifting the needle here. Like martial arts are becoming bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And 
I think there's only so many kind of like bros or meatheads who want to go and just like smash each other in the face or like, you know, give each other real injuries and it's like every day pour harder and they only want to smash each other. I think that's going to become the minority. I think at the moment everyone's just there because that's what exists. But once there are more and more alternative, it's like, bye-bye, I'm going to go somewhere where I feel safe. Yeah, I think that a lot of that um, ties just to the evolution of the art. You know, if you look at other martial arts, I mean, consider wrestling. Wrestling has been around since, you know, before recorded history, right? Wrestling is, a, is an ancient martial art. Um, it has had a lot of time to mature, to organize, to get into the Olympics, to be accepted there, to create governing bodies. Um, Jiu-Jitsu, not that old. Jiu-Jitsu is maybe about 100 years old. And it does have a very checkered past. I mean, a lot of the people who effectively created the sport uh, were not saints, to say the least. And their uh, their cultural influence is still felt on the sport to this day. So it will take some time, I think. But I agree with you that things are moving in the right direction. I mean, the reality is these issues that the community is having, um, they're being discussed very, very openly right now. And that is a good sign. I, I would be very concerned if these discussions were being suppressed. But the reality is when people do bad things, they're usually at least called out on it. And that's, in my opinion, the first step to fixing those issues is to have the dialogue about why it's a bad idea. 100%. And then if we think about, all right, so there's going to be some shit gyms, fine. What can the people who are, are forward thinking, right? So let's say beyond the ethics question, something that we started talking about already, right, is this idea of mental models. And you can have mental models for lots of different things from like the mechanical aspect of how you teach jujitsu, whether that's to do with, you know, posture, structure, base, more of like the technical aspects. And then I think what's probably more pertinent to this podcast is what are some of the other mental models that we can apply in terms of how people learn really effectively um, and the kind of social settings that we create as martial artists working together. So that's what I wanted to dig into more with you is to pick your brain about some of these ideas because I think that some of the coaches who listen to this show will be very excited to go, oh, my God, that's been explained so well. So... Mm. The first one I wanted to ask you about was the certainty heuristic, right? This idea that we have a bias to things that are black and white, that are absolutely true. Can you explain that a little bit better than I just did then? Yeah, yeah. This first came onto my radar um, as, I mean, again, I I want to avoid, I don't want to get political here. That isn't Mm -hmm. my intent. But I, I do want to talk about things that I would consider to be objectively true and some of the threats that we face right now in terms of, as a society agreeing upon what actually is true. And I think everyone, regardless of their personal leanings would agree that uh, we live in a time of rampant misinformation. It is incredibly hard to identify what is true. And the the reality is the more that someone is convinced that their opinions are completely 100% absolutely true, the more skeptical you should be. Um, and the, one of the things about certainty is that certainty is seductive, right? Certainty, it, you can kind of equate that with confidence and you can get really far just by being confident in what you say. And this is something that you'll see a lot of, um, con men and grifters and snake oil salesmen do is if you listen to them talk, 
they're 100% certain about everything they say. Like they'll tell you exactly what's happening and they believe it, like right down to the letter. There is no room for ambiguity in their statements. This potion is going to completely cure your diseases, full stop, that's it. Um, and that's reassuring, right? Especially in times where you're scared, in times of challenge, we flock to certainty. We want our leaders to tell us what is absolutely going to happen and we want to believe them. But the reality is that most situations are much more nuanced than that. And a mm. good critical thinker, someone who is truly being honest with you, will couch the reality and sound a lot less certain. They will tell you, okay, I, I am not an expert in this area, so take this with a grain of salt. Or they will tell you, rather than saying that, okay, you should always absolutely 100% do this, they'll tell you, you know, sometimes you do this, sometimes you don't. Here's where this rule applies. Here's where they don't. So the problem that happens is if someone is really an expert, they're not going to talk like an expert. They're going to talk like they don't know what they're talking about because everything they say will be couched by conditions. However, the problem is that our minds, we are, in, we are just engaged and primed to listen to people who can make promises to us that we believe in and that sound certain. And so when you hear um, uh, like a, a source of misinformation and they're just evangelizing something and they're making it sound like this is 100% true, it's so seductive. But we have to start looking at that as a red flag. If anyone says something is 100% true, um, then we got to be concerned about that. And we see that in the jujitsu space as well, because we have a lot of situations where instructors will act like something is 100% true and it's actually not. And there were lessons I was given as a, as a junior white belt where my instructor would say, always do this, always do this, never do this. And those lessons got encoded in my head. And 10 years later, I got my black belt and I'm still following these instructions and still learning that actually they were a lot more certain about what they said than they really should have been. And of course, I mean, we live in an era, in an era now where you have like martial artists and gym instructors giving vaccination advice and going on like more these weird moral crusades. And all I'm really saying is, look, if you've got a martial arts instructor and they seem to have an absolutely 100% certain stance on why you should like listen to Joe Rogan and all of this. I mean, just take that with a grain of salt, right? You're still dealing with a martial arts instructor. Most of these people are way out of their lane when they're talking about that stuff. Uh, so that's, that's what the certainty heuristic is, is we are attracted to people who can promise us certainty. And that's a very easy way for people to exploit you and suck you into like rabbit holes of misinformation. If you're an instructor and you're working with new students, right, and they ask you a question, you want to say it depends, right? Sometimes they'll ask you something, you, you want to go, oh, in this situation, I would do this, but in this situation, I would do that. And, and I kind of can't really give you a clear cut answer, but it's your third day. What do you do in that yeah. situation? This is an ongoing uh, series of debate that we've had with a bunch of different guests, and uh, everyone has a different, differing opinion on this, right? Some people are of the opinion that you should never mislead your students. Mm -hmm. So if the correct answer is, look, it depends, then you tell them it depends. And it's a very unsatisfying answer, but it's the truth, right? Um, there are other schools of thought that you give people what they need now and you hold off the harder stuff until they're ready for it. So the best example you can give is like a child. If you want to teach them how to ride a bike, you put training wheels on the bike. Mm -hmm. They're not supposed to use training wheels if you're riding a bike. Those are only there because they're like a, a crutch or a bridge that gets you used to the system. And then at some point you rip off the training wheels. So there's differing schools of thought in terms of what to do. Um, 
my preferred way to deal with this when I, when I'm teaching someone is I don't want to, I don't want to mislead anybody. So I will always tell them and try to couch them in the, the various what ifs and the various situations where this won't apply. But I will, I will still try to give them a satisfying answer at some point. So I will say like, okay, in the majority of situations, this is what you would do. But you need to know there are like at least three other major situations where this isn't going to work and here's what they are. It makes your lessons a lot more long-winded, but at least then I, do, I, have, I can sleep at night better knowing that I haven't misled anyone or given anyone bad information that they're going to suffer due to because for like the next 10 years, right? So that's, uh, that would be my approach, but I don't know if that's really the right approach. I, I hear instructors advocate for the opposite sometimes. Yeah, I don't know whether there's a black or white, all or nothing, something is right and something is wrong that kind of comes back to the certainty heuristic, right? But at the moment, I often like to put it back onto students. So if they ask me a question where it kind of depends, I'll say, well, you could do it this way, you could do it that way. What feels better for you at the moment yeah. based on your strengths? And, and then that gets them critically thinking and going like, oh, I don't know, what would I do? And then they've got ownership over it. But I don't think there's a right or wrong. But that's a really good approach because it's almost Socratic in a sense where you're asking people to start taking initiative and answering and figuring out the question on their own. And that matters because your goals in a lot of ways are going to dictate what the right answer should be. I mean, an example, you know, we were talking earlier about triangle chokes. If my goal in jujitsu is that I want to be a world champion. What that realistically probably means is that I'm going to be fighting people my size and look, a triangle choke is a totally reasonable strategy against people my size. So I should work on that move. I should make that a part of my game. Um, but if my interest is self-defense and I'm on the smaller side, that situation might change because if, if a self-defense situation would likely materialize in me getting attacked by someone who's got a hundred pounds on me. I'm not going to triangle choke that person because I know what's going to happen. They're going to squish me or they're going to pick me up and they're going to slam me. And that just might not be the right tool for that job. It's not that there's anything wrong with that technique. It's just that there's different tools that are better in different situations. So a good first place to ask people if they come to you with a, a nuanced question is, well, what are you trying to do? Like, why are you here? Are you here? Do you, what are your goals? Do you just want to learn to defend yourself? Are you here to get in shape? Do you want to be a champion? Are you competing in your own weight class? Are you competing in an open weight? Are you competing in the gi, not in the gi? And then once you got those questions, you can usually steer an answer a little bit better. Yes, I love that. And I think it speaks a lot to having a model that steps away from what the Japanese call senpai kohai, which is what I grew up with doing. I did karate as my first martial art, which just means seniors are above juniors, right? There's somebody who's in a position of power and what they say goes and what everyone else does follows. And it's not a very collaborative approach. It's very, I say, you do. And I know one of your mental models is to respect people, not positions. How do you think that plays out in clubs? Well, what I specifically mean in that case is that um, there there is an aspect of traditionalism in martial arts where you are supposed to respect and look up to the person who's more senior than you. And I challenge that assumption. Um, I think that that assumption comes from, honestly, from Hollywood, right? When we all get, before people get into martial arts and understand what it really is, most of what we know about martial arts, we frankly learn from movies, right? So when you think of a black belt, you think of you've got this mysterious guru who lives on top of a hill and he can dispense wisdom and defeat people by just like finger poking them. That is not what a black belt is. A black belt is just a person who has been training long enough that they've been promoted up the ranks 
certain amount of times. And whether those promotions even mean anything or are objectively measured in any way is debatable. You know, there is no universal standard for what it means to have a black belt. So it's not like a, getting a, you know, a, a CPA or a passing the bar or having some other sort of like designated agreed upon credential. It's literally just some person decided to give you a belt. And there, there is no check or balance around what exactly that should mean. So to look up to a person just because they have a black belt, I think is actually quite dangerous. Um, and especially because the reality is a lot of people who train jujitsu and presumably other martial arts are, are not very life experienced in a lot of ways. They might be very emotionally immature. They might um, just have very minimal life experience. They might not have a fully developed sense of ethics. I mean... If you're a 20 year old and you have a black belt, can you really be acting like you're a mentor? You know, you might be you might be good at aspects of the art, but it, should people really be looking up to you? I mean, you can go to these people and ask for technical advice, but I would not if you're, you know, a 20 year old black belt and all you've ever known is jujitsu, you probably should not be dispensing financial advice, for example, unless you happen to be a really good at that as well. But odds are you're probably not. So this becomes important because when people see a symbol of authority, that whole authority bias thing kicks in where our brain just says, oh, authority, and we're more inclined to give that person undue weight in what they say. And the black belt is a very visible symbol of authority that frankly is not held to the same level of standard that other symbols of authority are. I mean, if someone is wearing a military uniform, um, or if someone has, like I said, like a CPA, they're a certified public accountant, or if someone has passed the bar, you know that there's a certain level of rigor that that person has gone through. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean this is a good person, and they might not even be amazing at their job. Maybe somehow they just got by, um, but at least you know there was some degree of rigor, whereas a, a black belt can mean absolutely anything. In fact, in a lot of cases, it might be a, a fraudulent black belt, right? I mean, you can go on Amazon and buy a black belt for 10 bucks. So that could be the situation there as well. And that does happen every once in a while. So I always advocate that we, we don't respect people because of the credential they have or the position they hold, but we respect them because of the person they are. And, and that should be completely divorced from the belt ranking system, which I think uh, leads too much into talk of hierarchy, like you said. And eventually when you get a lot of gyms where things get really, really culty and gross and sometimes criminal conduct comes up, you'll almost always find that there's a correlation there with a degree of like instructor worship where the black belt is looked at as some sort of guru or leader and they're given more credence than they really should yeah and I mean there's nothing inherently wrong with having a collaborative approach like in my experience it's so much more effective to have something where it's not just like one person is in this really revered position of power and everyone else is kind of like you know the the underlings and I mean I was 12 when I started doing karate so I was very much steeped in the you know, bowing to people. And, and I do love that side of things, but I do agree that it becomes such a problem when it's only one person has the answers because it's also like they have the answers for what works for them. And that really encourages people to kind of become like robots and not back themselves to make critical decisions, um, which again is why I think it's a good idea to learn some concepts and then be applying those rather than just, you know, at gospel saying, this is the way to do this technique, this choke, that armbar, whatever it might yeah. be. Um, it's also very hard on the instructor too, because mm. I mean, it's weird. You can be, you know, two weeks away from getting your black belt. You're wearing like a brown belt or something on your waist and people will look at you one day. 
But as soon as you get the black belt, suddenly everyone's relationship with you is go is going to change. They're going to look at you with more authority, even though really nothing has changed at all. And this puts a lot of pressure on the on the instructor as well, because if you walk in front of a room of people and you got this symbol around your waist and everyone looks up to you and they are asking you for the answer because they think you're the guru, it, it's hard and you feel pressured to deliver an answer. And sometimes that results in you saying something even when the better thing to do would be to just shut up and say, I actually don't know. It's very hard for an instructor who's not experienced to say, I don't know, because you're in a room full of people who are probably paying you and it's counterintuitive, but actually a lot of the time, the best thing to do is to admit the limitations of your knowledge and work on helping fix the problems with your team. So rather than saying, you know, if you want to know something, thou must do this and that, you can sometimes work out an answer with your team. You can kind of turn it into a laboratory. You can research what other people have done. You can ask your students what's worked for them. You can troubleshoot and just play around and see if you can find an answer to the question. But it's important to understand that we shouldn't expect our black belts to know everything. It just makes things a bit too culty. Uh, and I think it also takes away from the experimental nature of the martial arts that make it so much fun. So another one of your mental models is psychological safety, right? This idea that we should create an environment where everyone feels like they can freely share their opinions, which is kind of what we're alluding to. But what are some practical steps for doing that in the gym if you're an instructor? Sure. So it's funny when I started the, the podcast and I started putting together all of the stuff, originally my interest was the mechanics of jujitsu, how the body works, how to break an arm, you know, all, all of this stuff. Mm. And I didn't think that the more social and cultural stuff would be ultimately of that much interest to me. But where I'm at now, that's actually the stuff that really interests me. The, the technique stuff doesn't really interest me that much. Um, reason being, look, if you take a martial art, there's a very, very low chance that you're ever going to need to actually use that in a self-defense situation. For a lot of people, you learn it and it's good to know, and it gives you a confidence boost and it keeps you in shape, but you're not likely to need to use it in, in a real life situation unless you're living somewhere that, that is a lot more dangerous. Um, but that said, the, the thing that will stick with you is the social impact, um, what you learn socially, how you build relationships within that community. And I really feel like the social side of the martial arts in the cultural side is actually more impactful to most students than whatever killer technique that they learn for the day, right? I think that the culture stuff is more important. So the question then becomes, how do you do it? Um, psychological safety is a term that I originally heard actually from um, the engineers at Google. I'm a technologist by day, and I remember reading an article about how Google managed their engineering team. And one of the things that they said was that uh, it is important to create an environment of psychological safety because otherwise good ideas are going to be suppressed. And, that, you know, people are not going to be willing to speak up if they feel that they are going to be embarrassed or humiliated or looked down upon for asking a question or asking a stupid question. And a lot of businesses operate this way where if you, and it's really hard actually to create an environment of psychological safety because you have to draw everyone out of their shell. And some people don't want to come out of their shell just due to personality type or past experience. So you need to, as the instructor or the owner or whatever your, your position is, you need to do your absolute best to make everyone feel as comfortable as possible to the point where they're willing to look dumb in front of other people. Um, and part of that, and the other thing too, in terms of safety is making people feel comfortable enough that they'll actually stick around. So there's a lot of things that I've learned recently from various guests we've had that I never would have thought of. Uh, we had a, an autism educator from the UK and he gave some really good examples of 
things you can do to make your gym more friendly to people who are neurodivergent that I never would have thought of. Like you talked about how things that are a minor inconvenience for, um, for people like me, like for example, flickering fluorescent lights, I hate those, but they're not going to completely screw up my day. Um, or similarly, just sudden loud noises. Again, I hate those, but I, you know, they're not going to screw up my day. But if you are elsewhere on the spectrum, things like that can completely throw you off your routine and make the environment very negative for you. So fix the stupid light bulb, like little things like that, that I never would have thought of. Um, there's also various signals that we give to people that I, on the podcast, you'll sometimes hear me talk about people who are outside of the demographic. And what I mean by that is, look, when we look at jujitsu and not every martial art is the same, but jujitsu is predominantly catered towards young men. That's just the way it has always been. It was originally marketed back when the Gracies did it as like a way to protect your, you know, to defend your honor in front of your girlfriend and all of this stuff. It's just like dumb machismo stuff. Um, but the result is that jujitsu, especially with its uh, relationship with the UFC and the history there, you get a lot of young men who come into the sport. And that's really the demographic that jujitsu targets. And my argument is that, look, if we ever want to get beyond that demographic, We've got to go out of our way to set the table to, to, to make those people feel like they belong here. If you are a mother of three and you're 50 years old and you work in a law firm and you've never done combat sports in your life, but you've always, always wanted to do them. And then one day you roll into a jujitsu gym, you finally work up the courage. Maybe you've been driving by that gym every day for a month thinking about it. And finally you work up the courage to go in there. You're surrounded by a bunch of 20 year old guys who are beating the hell out of each other. They're listening to like heavy metal or gangster rap or something that you can't relate to. There's no change room for the women. So they tell you, you either have to wait for all the men to finish, or you have to go to the bathroom and change, or you have to do it in your car. Um, you're the only woman in class. Clearly no considerations are put into like, okay, are there any different considerations if, if you're a female training? There's a lot of subtle signals that are being sent there that tell you that this is not my place to be and that it was a mistake to be there. And what an instructor can do is make their environment more inclusive by just setting the table out of the gate so that when people come in, they experience minimal signals like that. And some of the common things are, you know, you, you put up a code of conduct on the wall. You tell all new students what the code of conduct is. Um, you have change rooms for everybody so that people don't feel like they're second class citizens and there's no place for them. Um, you avoid um, music that maybe caters to a demographic or could be offensive to people, for example. Um, you avoid language. And I know that this one's controversial because people like to feel like they should say whatever they want. But if you're swearing like a sailor, you are, although that might appeal to you and your buddies, you are sending a signal to other people coming in the door that there is a, there is an exclusionary wall here and that the toll to pay is you've got to have that kind of personality type. And some people won't. Um, and I see gyms that are like this all the time. You know, you walk in and there's tons of cursing and just really, you know, like vile kind of bro stuff being said. And when you go to these gyms, they're always full of young men. And the instructors are always saying, I just don't understand why I can't get any, any women to train here. You know, why is it always, why is it always just young people? I just don't understand. And a lot of the time, the answer is because you're scaring them off before they even really get started. So honestly, the only way to know those kinds of signals is to ask the kinds of people you're catering to and to find out what their experiences are. Because someone like me can never speak on behalf of someone else's life experience. So if your goal, for example, is to make your gym more gender inclusive, then you gotta go talk to the kind of people that you're catering to, and you gotta find out what their past experiences were like, and you gotta make sure you don't make those mistakes yourself. 
I love it. Really, really well said and lots of practical things that people can like stop and think about and, you know, things like how loud is the music, you know, how much a light's flickering, all these kind of like sensory things that can be a huge, huge distraction for someone that is neurodivergent, someone with ADHD will get fixated on something like that and then not be able to learn. And and those are the kind of people I think that can thrive in something like jujitsu because if they get hooked on the content and what they're learning, instead of what's going on with the light flickering then the capacity for them to have that social transformation is is huge um so yeah that's something that I'm also really really passionate about is that kind of social change that people encounter when they really fall in love with a martial art and get to get past that initial jarring like oh my god I don't feel like I fit in with this environment kind of thing that sometimes happens when you first walk through gyms which segues pretty nicely to the question that I like to ask everyone on this podcast. And I'll let you make it a little bit more specific. So generally speaking, a lot of people say BJJ saved my life. You're a black belt. So you've said, you've heard it many (laughs) times, right? Yes. Why do you think other people would say that? And then my follow-up question is for you, it might not have saved your life, but I'm sure it's changed your life. How has BJJ changed your life? And why do you think it has such a profound impact on people that they say something so, you know, it almost seems over the top, like BJJ mm-hmm. saved my life. Why? Yeah. So there, there's kind of two things you'll hear people say a lot in jujitsu. And I, I know you've studied this and that it's not just jujitsu. Other martial arts do this too, but I hear this all the time in jujitsu. There's two things you're going to hear people say. One is jujitsu saved my life. And then the other one is jujitsu is therapy. And I would challenge, again, both of those assumptions. And I think the reason why people speak so highly of jujitsu and about how they saved their life, how it saved their life, and, and maybe for some of these people it really did. I don't want to downplay anyone's personal experience. I'm sure, positive, that a lot of people were in a really bad way and jujitsu gave them a focus and helped them get their life onto the track they wanted it to be on. Um, jiu-jitsu is like like any type of physical activity jujitsu is going to make you feel better out of the gate so i think that's a big part of it right i think that at the end of the day if you are engaging your body physically you're burning calories you're getting in shape that will just make you feel better so that's a part of it but i think there's more to it than that right jujitsu has this weird intoxicating effect that you just don't get from running on the treadmill or doing other types of athletics and anyone who has someone in their family who just started jujitsu knows exactly what i'm talking about because they're probably sick and tired of that person just refusing to shut up about how great jujitsu is um jujitsu does this weird thing to people where in the first few years if they get into it it's going to just take over their whole life and it's going to be the only thing they think about um I'd say that there's a few things about jujitsu on the positive side that lead to that perception. Now, I will also say this is not the case for everybody. We very much have a survivorship bias here because when people say jujitsu saved my life, we're talking to the people who hung around. We didn't talk to the people who tried this once and were like, I am out of here. These people are crazy. And we got to bear in mind, most people quit at white belt, right? There are a lot more people who tried jujitsu and just ran away as fast as they could, then there are people who say jujitsu saved my life. So we have to remember that. But for the people who do, I mean, again, there's the physical benefit. There is the confidence boost, right? When you start to see, especially once you've been training for a few months and you actually start to feel yourself improve and you actually realize I, I can defeat an assailant, even someone who's bigger and stronger than me. And you also develop that ability to stay cool under pressure 
these are things that you can feel yourself and that will make you feel better as a person as well, just from a confidence standpoint. But beyond that, I think for a lot of people, jujitsu is there, what we call the third place in their life. Um, this is generally speaking, when you talk about this, your first place is your home, your second place is your work, but human beings need a third place. They need a place where they can network, relax, blow off steam, meet friends, make friends, see their friends. For most of us, it's jujitsu. And that's, I, I, I have felt very much, I mean, I, I haven't really trained in almost three years now because of the pandemic. And I have absolutely felt the negative impact of having my third place, basically closing the door on that. I, I don't go to jujitsu anymore. And for a long time, that was really hard on me until I started making adjustments and finding other ways to socialize, including the podcast that we do, which became a big focus for me during the pandemic. So I think that those things, the fact that it's a, a social place, a third place for people, the confidence boost, and just the, the benefits to your body of developing a routine, a practice, um, I think that those things help. Anecdotally, one other thing I've heard people say is that jujitsu can inspire you to take better care of your body. Uh, and the reason why a lot of the time is because if you're doing things to your body that are not healthy, you're going to feel worse. So if you're a smoker, for example, if you drink a lot or if you just eat like garbage, you don't sleep enough, you're going to feel worse. Um, in regular worlds, in day-to-day -day life with the normies, that's, you know, you can kind of scooch by on that and still get by. But in jujitsu, if you're not at your best, some dude is going to choke you, right? Or, or put you in an arm lock or something. So there is a very immediate feedback loop that, okay, I need to do something to optimize the situation so I can perform better. And so a lot of people, I, I've heard people say that, you know, they were inspired by jujitsu to cut out alcohol, to cut out smoking, because they got tired of not having the gas tank on the mats that they wanted to have. I would say that's maybe another fringe benefit to doing the sport. So you will hear people say, hey, jujitsu saved my life. Um, that to me is probably the reason why that comes up, but I would also argue that when you hear that, when you hear people say jujitsu saved my life, or they say jujitsu is therapy, again, it's very important to, to take into account that this is a survivorship bias here. The vast majority of people who try jujitsu run away screaming and never look back. So this is not a universal truth, but the other thing too, is these things sound way too preachy and certain, uh, they sound way too certain. Like we talked about earlier, they make it almost sound like jujitsu is magical. And I don't think that's what we want to, the message we want to tell people. I would say, look, jujitsu can make your life better. It can be um, a practice that you adopt much like meditation or yoga that can improve your life in many ways that we already discussed, but it's not magic. It's not going to magically turn your life upside down. Um, there are also people who find jujitsu very therapeutic, almost like mindfulness practice. And that's great. But jujitsu is not therapy, not a substitute for therapy whatsoever. And I think it is a mistake to talk about it like it is. We actually did a whole two-part series on this way back in the day on the podcast about jujitsu as therapy and whether it's therapeutic. And the consensus we came to is jujitsu can make your life better, but it is not therapy it is not a substitution for therapy and it is harmful to tell people that it is a substitution for therapy. It's a very interesting topic, right? Because it's one of the things where I like to debate this with people and I wouldn't go so far as to say jujitsu is therapy. Um, but I do think that being trauma informed um, means putting the person at the center. And so if someone says to me, the thing that's going to make me feel better after being raped is to learn jujitsu. I have, I feel called to it. I keep driving past the gym. I really, really want to be able to go. 
we need to have options for people who have that as their truth to go in and to be able to engage with that kind of an activity and feel safe in doing so. So for me, that's where I say there's the gap, right? At the moment, it's despite everything, jujitsu saved my life, right? I happened to go to a good school or I already you know, I had some skills in resilience or not the people who don't have enough resilience skills just can't hack it at jujitsu. That's not what I'm saying at all, but it's kind of like the stars aligned and then I was able to derive the benefit from it. And at the same time, not everyone's going to get a benefit from, from training in jujitsu, just like not everybody likes doing yoga, just like not everybody likes meditating, you know, and I think meditation and breath work are the two things that I get really frustrated at being so holy graily again like all or nothing held as being like oh the reason why you have anxiety is you don't do enough meditation and you don't do enough breath work which you know doesn't consider that for some people breath work and meditation are incredibly stressful it's incredibly difficult to sit with yourself depending on um We're not one size fits all human beings, right? We're all different. And one of the most uh, annoying, cloying things about jujitsu people is their insistence across the board that everyone in the world should do jujitsu. And I, I can say that because I used to be that guy. Um, But of course, the more I train it, the more I've, I've developed more nuance about it. Jujitsu is a practice that encourages you to meet new people, to go outside your comfort zone, to get in shape, to learn to defend yourself, to be confident. And for those reasons, it can be good, but it is just a practice, right? There's no reason you have to do jujitsu to get those benefits. I mean, for crying out loud, I, I have got sort of equal benefits in a lot of ways from VR boxing, uh, something that I've taken up during the pandemic, right? And I found that, you know what, this is actually just as much fun as jujitsu. There's a lot of other paths that people can take and we need to make people understand that, look, jujitsu is a very cool thing you can do. It's a useful tool to have. It's a good practice, but it's not some magical promise. And again, this comes back to that certainty heuristic. It's not a promise that it's going to make your life better. There are people whose lives have been made infinitely worse due to jujitsu. I mean, I are, are you familiar with uh, Avery Clements from uh, formerly from the Jujitsu Times? She's kind of one of the top journalists in our space. You know, she wrote a, a really sorry. No, I, sorry, I was going to say I am, but listeners probably are not. So yeah, so so Avery is uh, probably the closest thing we've got to Bob Woodward in the jujitsu space. She's uh, a journalist who up until now is focused almost, almost exclusively on reporting on jujitsu. And she wrote this really awesome article that I can't recommend enough um, called The Call is Coming from Inside the Gym. And mm-hmm. if you Google that, it's on Jujitsu Times. That's a website. I highly recommend everyone read it. But she talks specifically about how we have marketed this thing as a sport to for the smaller, weaker person to defend against the bigger, stronger aggressor. And we've promised that it will make your life better and give you confidence and make you bullyproof and turn you into a modern day lion samurai, whatever you want. That's the marketing pitch. But the reality is there are a lot of people who got embroiled in um, exploitative behavior, who were assaulted physically and sexually, and that happened to them in jujitsu. And if they had never taken jujitsu, that never would have happened to them. Um, so we need to bear in mind that it is not as simple as jujitsu saved my life. There are benefits to this sport for sure. 
But we have to also openly admit that we've got issues with the jujitsu community right now. We don't regulate tightly enough. There's There are way too many sex predators in the sport. Shocking. I mean, I just got a notification today from a friend of mine. Um, there is a gym instructor here in the Lower Mainland where I live, and apparently they are embroiled in a sex scheme. And this is like the third one in Vancouver that this has happened to in a matter of years. And this is just one city. It is really common that sexual assault and other predatory behavior happens at martial arts gyms. And we can't talk about how jujitsu is so good without also talking about where our failings are. And one of our failings is that, yes, we have a culture problem right now that we need to fix. Um, that's just the way that it is. I still recommend jujitsu to people. Definitely. I love it. I say everyone should try it at least just once. But I would also caveat that with saying, understand where we're struggling as a community and make sure you do your diligence on the gym you're going to and the instructor you're going to. Um, I always suggest before you go to it, before you try out a new gym, I always suggest you take the instructor's name and you do some Googling, combine that name with other search terms like, you know, so-and-so at Google them again, but put like the word rape next to their name, the word assault, criminal, stuff like that. See mm -hmm. if any hits come up because you might be unpleasantly surprised that your instructor has done things that you are not proud of and you might be now exposed to some danger that you didn't know you were getting exposed to. And it's a lot easier to catch that problem and deal with it before you started a gym versus, okay, I've already been training there for two years and now I've got this relationship with the instructor and the team. And now I found out that they're all embroiled in this negative, awful stuff. And I, I, I am now emotionally and socially invested in this gym and I can't remove myself easily. Always better to keep these people out of your life than to let them in and try to unwind the clock afterward. Definitely. It's, it's And it's almost like a mirror for what we're seeing in society with coercive control, right? If we think about the statistics worldwide, which are pretty similar from country to country, Canada and Australia, there's not that much difference. It's one in three women are affected by domestic violence. One in six are uh, affected by sexual assault. What we don't talk about is one in how many men are perpetrators. We don't. We talk about the victims. We don't talk about the perpetrators. We don't have that data. It's not, it's not commonly spoken about. And so, but if you think about it like that, there's some portion of our society that is very predatory and some of them, of course, statistically are just going to exist in jujitsu. Then you've got amplification of the coercive control power dynamic, whereby somebody has financial, physical, emotional control over you. And I'm talking about domestic violence situations. And then you think about how that's available or that exists within our societies generally. And then we add the um, hierarchy paradox that we already spoke about, about, you know, not feeling like you can say no to a black belt into the mix. And, and it really just has blown out of control, like what we're seeing happening at the moment. It's almost like a siloed, amplified version of the really insidious problems that uh, happen within society. Yeah, and that's an important distinction too, right? I mean, I don't mean to pick on jujitsu. This this is a systemic issue across society. There are bad people who do bad things, and that's why we have laws. And admittedly, I I would argue that when it comes to things like sexual assault, what we're doing right now, I don't think is sufficient. Because I mean, like you you brought up, the there are a significant number of people who are going to be impacted at this during their lifetime, and the number of actual convictions that are produced based on that is much lower. A lot of people 
people get away with this stuff. I would say though that in the martial arts and especially jujitsu, there is there are a few other things that make it more complicated. Um, first of all, m the gyms tend to have these weird insular cult-like structures that makes it hard for these bad things to get reported when they do happen. There's an odd power dynamic with the instructor and the students. And look, I mean, don't get me wrong. The vast majority of jujitsu black belts you train under are going to be totally normal people who would never do anything like they're, they're probably all wonderful people. I've met a ton of people in jujitsu and most of them are awesome. But the problem is you've got that black belt hierarchy thing going on so that when a bad apple does get into that situation where they now have that position of power, we simply don't have sufficient checks and balances to fix that. In society at large, I'd, I would say we have more checks and balances that are more rigorously applied and there's less um, coercive control versus what you'd see, or at least different coercive control from what you'd see in a gym, but still far from perfect, right? Again, still absolutely way further away than when we need to be. But those are things that I, I am not really knowledgeable enough about to change. What I can talk about is how we can improve jujitsu. And yeah, like a lot of it comes down to what we talked about earlier. Yeah, definitely. One question that I've really liked lately is like, how does it get better than this, right? Like, with the, not overall saying that like jujitsu and martial arts are bad. We're saying we think they're good, but they can be better, right? Yes. How could it be even better than this? And then, like we said about people leading with their wallets, people following to go to the places that are actually better than the gyms that they're currently at because they've thought about how they can be ethical, how they can be inclusive, how that they can teach in a way that's going to speak to everybody, you know, how we have gender diversity. All of these wonderful, wonderful things are possible so long as we can have conversations like this one where, you know, we can talk about both sides, we can not be like uh, religiously tied to saying that, you know, jujitsu is therapy or jujitsu can never be therapy and all of this like black and white thinking, whether, the, you know, the real rational people can have just like general conversations of being like, how can I get a little bit better? How can I be a little bit more inclusive? How can I buy, be a little bit more of a decent human being as a coach or as a training partner? And then we just take like these little baby steps yeah. and we, we go in the right directions. <laughs> I, I love that. I absolutely love that. And yeah, I mean, I sometimes feel bad because I'm constantly ragging on jujitsu and I, I feel like people must listen to me and they must think this guy hates the sport, but no, like I, I love jujitsu. I've been doing it for the majority of my adult life. I, um, for a while, it was literally the only physical activity I actually did because it was the only one I enjoyed. I met my wife through jujitsu. I've met business partners through jujitsu. I've met some of my best friends through jujitsu. I've bonded with my family through jujitsu because like I said, my brother's a black belt. I loved every, I love the sport inside and out, but I don't love everything about it. And part of loving something is that you want it to be better. So when I speak about these things, I don't want people to think that I'm being like some jerk who just hates the sport and I'm trying to be a critic. I, I really just think that there are some things that we definitely need to improve and focus on. And if we are completely one-sided in our thinking where we refuse to accept any criticism about jujitsu and it's just, it's all got to be sunshines and rainbows and unicorns, we're never going to solve these problems. So I think the fact that these things are now being discussed is a really big win that we've seen in the last year, especially. And I hope that we continue to see more momentum in that direction because that's how you start to make change is you make it okay to talk about these things. Yeah, it's kind of like the... Um... 
I don't know what you would call it, like the societal, like the pedagogical version of focusing on your weaknesses in terms of technique, right? Now we're thinking about yeah. what are some of the weaknesses in the way that jujitsu kind of casually unfolded without really any thought to structure and governance and the things that we see in judo and, and wrestling. And then what an opportunity, like what an opportunity to be even better. Come back to that question. How can it get even better than this? How could jujitsu be better than judo, better than wrestling? Like from where we are now, it seems kind of far-fetched but who knows right how could it get even better than this yeah it, it could get there and i mean just from a financial standpoint right a lot of people try to do jujitsu professionally and they don't you know they just they aren't able to make enough money to really make it worth their while but look like what if you could what if i told you that you could double your gym owner you could double your revenue right wouldn't you want to double your revenue what if i told you you could more than double your revenue you know how you can do it make sure that everyone wants to come to your gym not just straight men because there are a lot of women who would benefit from going to jujitsu. There are a lot of other people who are gender fluid who would want to go to jujitsu. There's gay people, trans people. If they think that your gym is full of a bunch of crazy meatheads who hate gay people, they're not going to come. And that probably is not what you think, right? The vast majority of people that I've met in jujitsu do not harbor those beliefs. But the reality is, like, unless you send out signals that you're welcoming to these people, that this, that they are part of your culture, they're just not going to come in the door. Uh, and I, I feel like if you could, as a gym owner, focus on inclusivity and make it so that everyone is welcome coming to your gym and not just the young male demographic. I mean, you've more than doubled your customer base right there, right? We should we should want to double our revenue. This is a good thing. Inclusivity makes money. Um, and since in jujitsu, we often have such a trouble with making enough money in this sport. I think that it's awesome that there's such an untapped market, but we got to tap that market. We got to make sure we're more inclusive to them. Yes. Amen. 100%. I could not have said it better myself. And and I think like nothing gets me more angry than hearing people say things like, oh, women just don't like rolling around sweaty with each other. <laughs> it's categorically not true. And, and we don't really need to preach it on this podcast because most of the, of the listenership are women who are absolute badasses in combat sport, despite being the minority. But this is the message that we want to keep like being the ones saying it out there because there's too many people saying women don't like combat sports. Yes. So I would say to those people, when they say things like, um, women don't like rolling around with sweaty men or whatever, I would turn that around and say, are you sure that's the case? Or is it the case that women don't like rolling around with you? Because it's starting to sound like if you're saying things like that, they're starting to sound like there's kind of a broader reason why women might not want to have anything to do with you. Um, but this comes back to the, the inclusivity and the onboarding for new customers. I mean, I think this is an area where we could really improve the sport. I remember when I started jujitsu, they just threw me onto the mat. And they said, go. And a bunch of strangers I've never met before choked me unconscious. And I thought, okay, this is an interesting thing. I'm going to keep doing it. Um, and I had, you know, I came into it as a single 20 something guy. I had really nothing to lose and I was stubborn and I just decided I want to do jujitsu and I'm going to stick through this. But for most people, they wouldn't do that, right? I mean, you, you talked earlier about the potential benefits of jujitsu to trauma survivors. I mean, if you have had personal trauma in your life in that matter, particularly if it's sexual assault or something to that capacity, what does that experience look like where you go to a gym for the first time and you really think jujitsu is going to be the thing that, that, you know, kind of fixes things and gets you back on track. And your first experience is they throw you in there with a stranger that outweighs you by a hundred pounds. And his job is to choke you unconscious. Like, is that really going to help your trauma or are you exacerbating it? Um, and that problem 
isn't an intentional malicious thing that that gyms do it's ignorance it's just that they don't realize that we should have better ways of onboarding our students than just throwing them into the shark tank right that's not a good way to onboard your customers i would recommend if you're a gym owner sit down with customers before they come in explain the gym to them explain the facility to them make a point of introducing them to specifically to some of the other key leaders in your team um, explain to them your policies ask the, the person what their goals are make sure that you can help align them towards their goals it, like i said if someone is a trauma survivor and they came to jujitsu specifically to rebuild their confidence the last thing you want to do is traumatize them on their first day so uh, and that doesn't mean, mean that people are weak i hate this because people often say this they'll say things like you know iron sharpens iron and lions are always hungry and blah mm -hmm. blah blah and so if you want to learn jujitsu you got to go in there and be a, a stone cold killer i do not believe that for a second um we as instructors maybe we can get everyone to that point i mean i would love it if everyone who goes into jujitsu winds up becoming a total kick-ass black belt yeah, that's one of the things in the jiu-jitsu community that really bothers me is people always say things like iron sharpens iron and we all have to be, you know, like modern day samurai and we all have to be badasses and that the way to get good at jiu-jitsu is you just got to go in there and tough it out. That is true at some point when you get closer to being more experienced yes the the goal of a practice like jiu-jitsu is to teach you to go outside of your comfort zone but you also don't want to overwhelm people too early um the process of taking someone out of their comfort zone to help them grow is like turning a dial up you don't just throw them in there and let a bunch of strangers beat your ass that is not necessarily going to help you unless like me you're just so stubborn that you decide to just stick through it if we really want to be friendly and welcoming to people who are cautious or or um just otherwise afraid of joining something like this we have to start from their comfort zone and move the dial up as they're ready and that means that we have to cater some degree of individual training and expectations around people or you're going to lose a lot of customers and if they came to you to resolve trauma issues you're, you could wind up just making them worse so i would say if you've got someone like i said you bring them into the gym always you should be sitting down with new students and helping understand their goals but if their goal is to recover from past trauma or something to that effect then you really need to dig into that, understand what their comfort level is, and check with them first before you put them in an uncomfortable situation, right? What, you, as an instructor, you should not do is go up to a, that new person and be like, you, you, go, fight. Don't do that. Like, ask them and find out what they're actually comfortable with and then coach them. You're supposed to be a coach after all. So coach them through to that next level. Tell them what it's going to be like. Prepare them for that. Just be a little bit gentler and a little bit more empathetic and try to put yourself in the shoes of the other person, right? Not everyone is some badass lifelong martial artist who chews up nails for breakfast, right? Some people take a little bit tough time to get there. And your job as a martial arts instructor is to help them on that journey. Yeah, I could not have said it better. And we've we've spoken a lot on this show about consent in martial arts and how wild it is that we have such specific consent models in, you know, medical consent and other areas of society. And then we come to combat sports where consent should be paramount because we are choking and punching each other in the face. And we just kind of have this ex um part of me implicit consent that you, you know, has lots of windows for error. We don't really have a model for bringing explicit consent. What do you and don't you consent to before every single round? It just blows my mind. I talk about it all the time and I'll always refer back to Dr. Alex Channon's work who we've had on the show before and, and his papers about that are absolutely fantastic. 
Oh, I'll have to take a look into those. It sounds interesting. But yeah, I am a, I work with, I work in legal uh, some of the time and I am not a big fan of implied consent, right? Like I think, I think that consent needs to be ex informed and generally very explicit. I don't like the idea of just assuming that because someone walked into your jujitsu gym looking to do a free trial, that that meant that they gave you full consent to do whatever to them that you plan to do, right? I think that there should be a, a more gentler onboarding process in the sport and I get why it is the way that it is, right? Part of the reason why jujitsu has been so successful is because it works. And so what the Gracies and the older guys used to do is they would basically grab someone and they choke them unconscious and be like, see, jujitsu worked. And then the other person would say, wow, what a great sales pitch. Obviously it works because you choked me out. So now I want to learn this. Uh, that will work for some people. But again, if we want to expand beyond the, the original demographic, we need to go out of our way to build an on-ramp to include those people. Yes, I love it. I want to be super respectful of your time. So are there any other topics that have come up in the back of your brain, like, well, that would be interesting to touch on or anything you want to raise to the audience at all? I mean, that's pretty much the, the big stuff there, but I just, I can't thank you enough for inviting me on here. I love the work that you're doing. I think it's awesome that you've got this very, very specific platform to draw attention to what I, I believe, like I said, is the biggest thing that is, that is holding jujitsu back. I mean, if we can make jujitsu inclusive and we can make it trauma friendly and trauma informed, then I think what we find is we double the, the footprint of the sport, right? We get a lot more people in here and that means a lot more money for the people who own gyms and we should all want that. So I think this is important work. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's very, very kind. Like I said, I'm obviously a huge fan of your podcast. Um, and I want you to plug it one more time, just in case anyone listening to this is like, oh yeah, maybe I'll check out this whole mental models thing. Where do people find you? Oh, perfect. So uh, the podcast again is BJJ Mental Models. You could just Google that or you can go to bjjmentalmodels.com. Uh, if you go there, there's a link to all of the podcast episodes we've ever done. I generally encourage people to start with the podcast because it's a lot easier to just dive in there. But we've also got a bunch of other written content and stuff on there. And of course, if you want to reach out to me or you've got a question, you can just, there's a form there to shoot me a question. I'm always happy to talk about this stuff. I think it's, like I said, this is my my kind of my passion right now in jujitsu is the more cultural and social side of things because it's such a great tool if we use it properly there. And it's just just a matter of teaching people how to do that and learning how to do it, right? Because, I mean, no one really has all the answers, but conversations like this help us get there. Yeah, 100%. Hey, I should ask you too, because the way that I always tell people, but I recommend your podcast because I do a fair bit to new white belts, and we say, listen to episode one and then episode 50, because they're both kind of about posture structure and base. What do you think of that as a recommendation? Is that a good way to start? Oh boy. Um, you know, it's funny. We were just talking about this recently. Uh, originally when we started this, there wasn't that much content that we made. So people just started from the beginning, but now we got so much stuff that often it, it is hard to just jump into something if there's already, you know, hundreds of episodes before a lot of people like to go back and uh, listen to episode one onward because you can kind of do that sequentially. I mean, I try to make every episode completely standalone, but there are, are going to be benefits to listen to listening to it in order. So I know a lot of people do that, but yeah, if there were one episode I would suggest people listen to, um, it would be episode 50 because we specifically talk about that posture structure based stuff. And that's a very useful way for understanding jujitsu without having to try to cram your brain full of 
concepts or sorry of techniques and memorization so again episode 50 is usually a pretty good place to start if you want to get a feel for what it's all about but yeah if, if there's a specific thing that people want to know again just go to the website bjjmentalmodels.com just shoot me a question and say what you want to learn and i can probably point you to the right episode amazing thank you so much thank you so much again no problem thanks a lot for having me i really enjoyed it have you thought of something to be grateful for today what was it I'm grateful for the amazing women that train with me at the Fight Back Project. I'm grateful for Nari and the beautiful song Shape Me heard at the beginning and end of every episode. And I'm grateful for you for listening to this show and helping martial arts keep saving lives. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you'd like to leave me a review to help more people find the show, that's a bonus. shapes me but me don't gotta tell you what my name is i don't gotta explain it walk in the room hear a boom erupting like i'm famous i'm here shedding shells i'm shameless half in nothing no complacence Walk to many tight ropes with no hope, so I became this poster they hold over all the heads of trauma holders. You don't need to know my history, I move boulders. Atlas shrug, cause I lifted the weight above his shoulders. No pretense of defense, move first like chess soldiers. This goes deeper than empowerment, cause huh, I'm the one that power it. Physical meets mental challenge me to keep devouring. If I can't change the scenery, at least I change perspectives. No longer isolated, but elevated and selective. Darkest places become beautiful spaces. This is where rage meets patience. Meets power meets gracious. Meets, we're so glad you came in. The feeling is contagious. When you the walking impact of intended bad intentions. When you the manifesting of collecting all they tensions. You the soul and body hold it all and still remember. But I'm a work in progress, testament to all contenders. Forgot what it was like to have control over self. Forgot what it was like to be the one in charge. Forgot in my reflection, I could see all my wealth. Forgot that with my bare hands, I break all these bars, barriers, and obstacles. They can't cage me. They can't chronicle all my experiences and reduce them to appearances. When I was truly beaten, gave myself clearances to fall down, mess up, and get myself back up. I'm not looking for clovers because I don't believe in luck. Damn, you were badass. I heard them say it clearly. Why, thank you very much. I know now I'm not weary of what's next for me because I expect to see growth like I was planted, watered, fed, and bloomed to be the positivity and accountability. Knowing they won't step if I'm the agent of my agency. I think I found my voice again, huh? I think I found my voice again, huh? I'm not sorry, I'm not sorry, you're the end where I begin. Boundaries, I know them well. Take a breath and meditate. Who is she? I know her well. Now I get to open gates. One, two, one, two. I don't need your permission. And if you get uncomfortable, then use your intuition to know that I won't stay where respect is ever missing. And everything I do, that's me making decisions. It's truly underrated, the value of self-worth. Forget that I was rich from the moment of my birth. A penny for my thoughts, no really. You can't afford it, you cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it. You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it, huh?